Hello everybody, you are listening to the New Discourses Podcast. I'm James Lindsay, and you have stumbled into part three of a series that I hope will be in four parts, but maybe five parts. It's coming along. We'll see. Um, where I'm reading through Herbert Marcuse's 1965 essay, Repressive Tolerance, which I've advocated for people to read repeatedly, and I finally got sick of people not reading it and saying they can't understand it when they try to read it, so I decided to read it to you and explain it. So this is part three. There have been two previous parts that have come out um, before this, so you want to go back to the beginning if you want to know what's going on. We're just going to pick up where we left off which we're just shy of halfway through, including the postscript at this point. So parts one and parts two outline the first half of the essay. In part one, to kind of very, very briefly summarize, I start by explaining that Frankfurt School, critical theory, what critical theory is, who Herbert Marcuse was, comparing the idea of Karl Popper's paradox of tolerance, which I think that Marcuse was trying to resolve with his suggestion of this repressive tolerance, which he calls the discriminating or a liberating tolerance in this essay. Um, I also laid out that he, he, he says essentially, I mean, the thesis of the essay is very clear. It's not ambiguous. We will hear it explicitly that that which, that which is a movement from the left should be given tolerance all the way, even when it's violent, that which is a movement from the right should be treated with intolerance, even including by violence and censorship, and as we will see, pre-censorship. And so it's a very clear essay calling for the asymmetry of, of how things operate in society. So part one, if you go back and listen to that, you hear the introduction to the essay, the beginning, where he lays out that this really is the thesis to the to, to the essay. He explains the functions of tolerance, and he basically outlines that cr- there are these people, he doesn't name them, but he's talking about critical theorists, and that critical theorists have the right insight, they understand truth, they understand false or falseness, they understand right and wrong better than other people. And he also outlines that the society itself, and this really is the kind of the core of what's happening in section in part two, outlines this, that, that the society itself is structured in such a way that always reproduces the oppressions and, and, and uh, harms and violences. And it becomes more and more clear. He's talking about violence as we go along. He calls what we live in in the United States in 1965 or Western democracies in 1965, he calls them um, democratic totalitarianism or totalitarian democracies. And it's really, I think, the, the, the you really want to listen to part two. You really want to go check out part two because you will see immediately that the, the world that Marcuse was describing with repressive tolerance is in fact the world that we live in. But it's also exactly the thing he's criticizing. So he has created the monster. And so it's, it's a very interesting circumstance. It feels very paradoxical. So I think part two is very, very interesting. I was very excited to go through that. So we're picking up where we left off in part three. I will hit just a little bit where we left off in part two. Um, the the close where we where the last thing that we talked about um, he actually correctly identifies, he says, with all of its limitations and distortions, democratic tolerance is under all circumstances more humane than an institutionalized intolerance, 
which sacrifices the rights and liberties of the living generations for the sake of future generations. And I think that our woke friends and our oligarchical friends and our Democratic Party friends would be really uh, wise to pay attention to the fact that they've become, following the direction of Marcusa himself, the monster that they think that they're fighting. He then goes on and says, the question is whether this is the only alternative. I shall presently try to suggest the direction in which an answer may be sought. In any case, the contrast is not between democracy in the abstract and dictatorship in the abstract. So that sets us up. That's where we left off. He's now going to talk about democracy. So Marcuse says democracy is a form of government which fits very different types of society. This holds true even for a democracy with universal suffrage and equality before the law, such as the United States in 1965, which would have just passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And the human costs of a democracy are always and everywhere those exacted by the society whose government it is. Their range extends all the way from normal exploitation, poverty and insecurity, to the victims of wars, police actions, military aid, etc., in which the society is engaged, and not only to the victims within its own frontiers. These considerations can never justify the exacting of different sacrifices and different victims on behalf of a future better society, but they do allow weighing the costs involved in the perpetuation of an existing society against the risk of promoting alternatives which offer a reasonable chance of pacification and liberation. This is a big theme for Marcuse, that you are trying to break out of free societies that are not perfect utopian societies. And part one, if you go back and listen or have read the essay, at the beginning of the essay, he points out that it is the role of intellectuals like himself to remember certain, as he says, historical possibilities and that those historical possibilities have now become considered utopian possibilities. Those are ones where we have pacification and liberation. Those are the ones where he says that we don't need to have military, we don't need to have police, we don't need to have a monopoly of force granted to a state to enforce its ways and will to keep law and order. So this is, in some sense, very much him looking to, he calls them historical possibilities, that's in the Marxian and Hegelian sense, so they are, in fact, as he says, tries to say they're not, they are in fact utopian possibilities. But he says that, you know, we have a reasonable chance if we kind of can throw off the shackles of, of, you know, liberal society and capitalism in particular, that we have a reasonable chance of finding these alternatives with pacification and liberation. Surely, he says, no government can be expected to foster its own subversion, but in a democracy such such a right is vested in the people, that is, in the majority of the people. So here he's kind of echoing the Declaration of Independence, but he's not talking now about holding the government accountable to the people. He's talking about subverting the government. This is a more Marxist approach than what we would have seen in 1776. This means, he says, this means that the ways should not be blocked on which a subversive majority could develop. And if they are blocked by organized repression and indoctrination, their reopening may require apparently undemocratic means. So here's where we see him shifting. This is where this essay, it's already 
dark, but this is where the essay starts to get dark. This is where it really starts to get dark. Okay, so the ways should not be blocked on which a subversive majority could develop. That's a revolutionary majority that's going to have this idea of giving us uh, alternatives that have a reasonable chance of creating pacification and liberation in what? In the Marxist utopia, the communist utopia. The, the, me, the ways should not be blocked on which a subversive majority could develop, and if they are blocked by organized repression and indoctrination, he's cited the media, we could add education, maybe patriotic education. Their reopening may require apparently undemocratic means. They would include the withdrawal of toleration of speech and assembly from groups and movements which promote aggressive policies, in his estimation, armament, chauvinism, discriminations on the grounds of race and religion, uh-oh, Joe Biden, or which oppose the extension of public services, social security, medical care, etc. So here you have explicit left-wing um, talking points, anything that w tries to stop that. So here you can see where it's going to, you know, you can't tell which side Marcuse would come down on because he wants the left-wing utopia. He would see the right as opposing the left-wing utopia correctly because it's not going to work but at the same time, he also opposes the totalitarianism that his own movement has taken on. It's a very interesting situation to be in. Moreover, he says, the restoration of freedom of thought may necessitate new and rigid restrictions on teachings and practices in the educational institutions. We've seen that come to pass. Which by their very methods and concepts serve to enclose the mind within the established universe of discourse and behavior thereby precluding an a priori uh, sorry thereby precluding a priori a rational evaluation of the alternatives he means marxism and to the degree to which freedom of thought involves the struggle against inhumanity restoration of such freedom would also imply intolerance towards scientific research in the interest of deadly deterrence so military research for example of abnormal human endurance under inhuman conditions, etc. I shall presently discuss the question as to who is to decide on the distinction between liberating and repressive, human and inhuman teachings and practices. Guess what? Spoiler alert, it's going to be him. He gets to decide the distinction, but people like him, people who think like he does, revolutionaries with a Marxian utopia at the end of the rainbow, get to decide, spoiler alert, between liberating and repressive, human and inhuman teachings and practices. I've already suggested, he says, that this distinction is not a matter of value preference, but of rational criteria. Again, rational is going to be in light of the critical theory, parology, paralogic. That means he gets to define himself and people who agree with him as rational and everybody else as irrational which is kind of the thing the critical theory schools did. If you read Horkheimer's traditional and critical theory, if you read Adorno and Horkheimer's uh, dialectic of enlightenment, you can get that, that quite clearly, that that's the school of thought thought that way. Their stuff is ra more rational than rational, and that which is actually just rational or objective is by uh, its very nature becomes irrational. 
To steelman that argument, they were looking at the rise of the totalitarian regimes of the fascists in Italy and under the Nazis and also Stalin and the way that they used so-called rational calculuses to do what they were doing, which is bogus because the Nazis were unrepentantly irrational and did so, kept things vague on purpose. It's, it's, it's bogus. Okay, back to Marcuse. While a reversal of the trend in the educational enterprise at least could conceivably be enforced by the students and teachers themselves and thus be self-imposed, that is kind of what's happened, the teaching colleges and the students because they are motivated in their social milieu to be very, um, I don't know, woke, have, you hear educational administrators say that the pressures have come from below, from the students, they want woke institutions. I don't think that's as strong in K-12 through as it has been in the universities, but that the universities claim that they're mostly responding to student pressure, meaning usually a profound minority of students that has now grown to probably most of the students. But in the first place, it was a very loud and irritating minority that was agitating for these things that the administration was responding to. But anyway, he claims that education by, by means of the teachers and of the students could become, could self-impose the revolutionary will here. Um, but then he goes on and says, the systematic withdrawal of tolerance toward regressive and repressive opinions and movements could only be envisaged as results of large-scale pressure, which would amount to an upheaval. In other words, it would presuppose that which is still to be accomplished, the reversal of the trend. However, resistance at particular occasions, boycott, non-participation at the local and small group level may perhaps prepare the ground. It's all that left-wing activism that we've seen for the last 60 years. There's where he's saying we could till the soil to, get, to make it work that way. Right here is where he says it. The subversive character of the restoration of freedom appears most clearly in that dimension of society where false tolerance and free enterprise do perhaps the most serious and lasting damage, namely in business and publicity. So I want to freeze for a second because he says the subversive character of the restoration of freedom. And there are two things happening here at once, which we did discuss in part two, uh, that, this is, that these two things are happening at once. Okay, so when you have a truly repressive regime, you do kind of need subversion to restore freedom. The thing is that for the Marxists and neo-Marxists, and Marcuse was a neo-Marxist, true freedom is only possible, true democracy is only possible when they are in their, they are far along the road to their utopia at the end of the communist rainbow. Because otherwise, there are systemic oppressions, there are systemic injustices that prevent true freedom. There's false consciousness that the society is indoctrinating people into, so they aren't clearly thinking. They're not rational agents. The whole of the second part of this uh, series deals with the fact that Marcuse believes that the society is indoctrinating people not to be able to participate in society the way that, say, John Stuart Mill said, that the marketplace of ideas is actually bogus because everybody has false consciousness. And it reads really weirdly when you go through that. Again, part two is really fascinating to me. Um, it reads really, really interestingly because you can kind of see that that's true, but it's true in the people that it's his people. He's talking about blue-pilled people, but he's he thinks he's red-pilling people when he's blue-pilling them as things have progressed now because his stuff has taken on all the power. And so he's saying, oh, you've got to be red-pilled to, to really understand the world. 
But his thing is the blue pill now. He's not selling red pills. His thing is the blue pill. It's real. I mean, I know it's a useful, it's a different kind of metaphor, but it's a useful thing to, to put it that way. So when he says here, the restoration of freedom, he's talking about getting far along the road toward the communist utopia at the end of the rainbow. That's very important to understand that that's the vision, this liberated society. Maybe it's not pure communism. It's probably not, certainly not truly Marxist, but it's not going to be capitalist. It's going to be post-capitalist and post-capitalist is going to look something very communistic. And that's where, well, that's what he's talking about. That's where the restoration of freedom happens. He says that the, the, the subversive character of the restoration of freedom appears most clearly in that dimension of society where false tolerance and free enterprise do perhaps the most serious and lasting damage namely in business and publicity. Against the emphatic insistence on the part of the spokesman for labor, I maintain that practices such as planned obsolescence, collusion between union leadership and management, slanted publicity are not simply imposed from above on a powerless rank and file, but are tolerated by them and the consumer at large. So you have companies relentlessly marketing they're making planned obsolescence so you're going to your blender is going to break and uh, break down on purpose and you have to buy another one and the company's going to make more money um, you have the union collaborating with the management to keep the worker down cutting deals all this corruption and he's saying that this is not just imposed on people but people because they're not revolutionary enough are tolerating it so this is where his definitions of tolerance are going to start getting really weird because he's saying you're tolerating something that should be intolerable. And so he's going to confuse himself about tolerance to make his argument. Then he says, however, it would be ridiculous to speak of a possible withdrawal of tolerance with respect to these practices and to the ideologies promoted by them, for they pertain to the basis on which the representative, the repressive, I'm sorry, affluent society rests and reproduces itself in its vital defenses. So you have false consciousness because you buy into the so-called repressive affluence society. You want to succeed in this society. You want to become rich. You want to do your job. You want to participate in consumerism. You want to buy this. This is a huge theme for these critical theorists, especially in the 50s and 60s. It's a huge theme. All of them rail on this. And because you have this false consciousness that this society is good, you tolerate these intolerable abuses, which isn't true. Of course, this isn't true. People who lobby about this, people complain about this, people file complaints, people ended up getting, you know, there are consumer protection laws. In 1965, they were not as good as what we have now in many regards. But nevertheless, to say that people tolerated this because they have false consciousness is some seriously critical theory, um, elitist mumbo jumbo. But that's how they think. That's how, this is what they believe. So this is the justification for why they are the right people to make the decisions that we just talked about before. Uh, he is going to be, people like him, critical theorists are going to be the ones who get to decide between liberating and repressive human and human and teachings and practices because of this, because otherwise you have false consciousness. He says, for they pertain to the basis on which the repressive affluent society rests and reproduces itself and its vital defenses their, their removal would be that total revolution which this society so effectively repels. So the only way out of this trap, this crooked toleration, as he puts it, is to have a complete, a total revolution that the society so effectively repels. What revolution, by the way, do you think he's talking about? I won't hum the Jeopardy theme for you while you try to figure out that it's 
the communist one. To discuss tolerance in such a society, he writes, means to re-examine the issue of violence and the traditional distinction between violent and nonviolent action. Uh-oh, time to redefine violence in his favor. The discussion should not from the beginning be clouded by ideologies which serve the perpetuation of violence. Even in the advanced centers of civilization, violence actually prevails. It is practiced by the police, in the prisons and mental institutions, in the fight against racial minorities. True in 1965, by the way. We want it to be practiced by the police to the right degree, the authorized degree by the people to serve and protect. We do the same in prisons and mental institutions, but we also want accountability there. We want body cams and stuff, right? Again, two things happening at once here. It is carried by the defenders of metropolitan freedom into the backwards countries. I think Trump called them shithole countries. So he's now talking about our wars, which Trump didn't start any of and Biden just restarted in a backwards country called Syria. This violence indeed breeds violence. But to refrain from violence in the face of vastly superior violence is one thing. To renounce a priori violence against violence on ethical or psychological grounds because it may antagonize sympathizers is another. Nonviolence is normally not only preached. Sorry. Nonviolence is not. I'm really screwing that sentence up. Nonviolence is normally not only preached to, but exacted from the weak. It is a necessity rather than a virtue, and normally it does not seriously harm the case of the strong. Then he raises a point. Is it, it, so he's talking basically about uh, nonviolence being generally something that's forced upon the weak. Um, they don't just tell the weak, the, the subordinate, to be nonviolent. They force them to be nonviolent. Um, so it's made a necessity for people who are insubordinate subordinated positions to be weak. They can't rise up. You can't have a slave revolt. You can't have a black revolt in 1964 because the police will crack down on you, the public will crack down on you, and so on. So he's basically saying that nonviolence is is, is is pushed onto people and made weak. Then he raises, even in, it's amazing in light of the civil rights movement that just used, just used mostly peaceful Nonviolent methods. That was Martin Luther King's whole approach. He said that violence was not his movement. Then he raises, is the case of India an exception? With Gandhi, obviously. There, passive resistance was carried through on a massive scale, which disrupted or threatened to disrupt the economic life of the country. Quantity turns into quality. On such a scale, passive resistance is no longer passive. It ceases to be nonviolent. It's a weird renaming of violence. The same holds true for the general strike. Robespierre's distinction between the terror of liberty and the terror of despotism and his moral glorification of the former belongs to the most, conv belongs to the most convincingly condemned aberrations, even if the white terror was more bloody than the red terror. So he's referring to the French Revolution and what followed there. The comparative evaluation in terms of the number of victims is the quantifying approach which reveals the man-made horror throughout history that made violence a necessity. In terms of historical function, there is a difference between revolutionary and reactionary violence, between violence practiced by the oppressed and by the oppressors. 
In terms of ethics, both forms of violence are inhuman and evil. But since when is history made in accordance with ethical standards? To start applying them at the point where the oppressed rebel against the oppressors, the have-nots against the haves, is serving the cause of actual violence by weakening the protest against it. So here he's laying out very explicitly that if you are on the side of revolution, if you are on the side of overthrowing oppression, if you are on the side of the have-nots, the underdogs, the oppressed, then you have the right to use violence, but not otherwise. You don't have the right to maintain oppression, to maintain poverty, to act in a reactionary way and use violence. So he's saying that there is a tremendous moral difference. And I think this is a chilling sentence, but in terms of ethics, both forms of violence are inhuman and evil. But since when, in, since when is history made in accordance with ethical standards? He then goes on to quote, um, who is it? I have to look at the bottom of the page. I forgot to look who it is. It's in French. Um, let me find the answer to that question. I'm go back up. Sartre. That's right. So he then quotes Sartre. I can't read it in French, and I wouldn't be able to do anything with it, so I'll do it. Rough translation is given. Understand finally this. If violence were to begin this evening, if neither exploitation nor oppression had ever existed in the world, perhaps concerted nonviolence could relieve the conflict. But if the whole governmental system and your nonviolent thoughts are conditioned by a thousand-year-old oppression, your passivity only serves to place you on the side of the oppressors. So here we have that justification, right? That if the system itself is violent, if the system itself is bad, that if you are not taking up arms against oppression, then you are complicit in that oppression. And I think there's a point to that when the oppression is really actually oppression, but not when the, 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 the two things happening at the same time thing keeps coming up. Not when it's not actually oppression. Not when it's oppression based on the fact that you as a critical theorist sit there as a me, an intellectual, saying all these stupid plebs aren't revolutionary enough for me, so they must think wrong and everybody must have conditioned them to think against their own interests. When it's not actually oppressive, that's you're, you're not in the domain. This is where Marcuse deviates the most blatantly. He's looking to historical issues, and I get it. In 1965, you look at the race issue, it was it was real, it was raw, it was there, it was happening. 1985, 2005, no, not so much. Less. Not zero. Less. Much less. So you, you, you can find ways to apply something where it makes sense and say, yeah, but that's true. But if you misapply it to a situation where it doesn't make sense, you now are, as we see, creating the conditions of totalitarianism from what seems to be the opposite, what seems to be a repudiation of totalitarianism. So Marcuse continues, The very notion of false tolerance and the distinction between right and wrong limitations on tolerance, between progressive and regressive indoctrination. So now he's, going to be, he's in favor of progressive indoctrination here, right? Revolutionary and reactionary violence demands the statement of criteria for its validity. These standards must be prior to whatever constitutional and legal criteria are set up and applied in an existing society, such as clear and present danger and other established definitions of civil rights and liberties. For such definitions in themselves presuppose standards of freedom and repression as applicable or not applicable in the repressive society, they are specifications of more general concepts. Okay, so hold up. That's a lot. Let's unpack what he just said there. 
He's still trying to figure out who gets to decide what is what is what is real tolerance and what is fake tolerance, what is um, progressive and regressive indoctrination, revolutionary and reactionary violence. We have to, he says we have to we have to make a statement of what criteria distinguish between these. And he says whatever the standards we use, because his argument so far has been that the state, if it is in fact repressive as he believes it is, if the state is already repressive, if the circumstance of the society is already repressive, if it's already intolerant, then though the logic of the state or that society cannot be used. It has to, so he says that the standards must be prior to whatever constitutional legal criteria are set up. Remember, this guy thinks that the U.S. Constitution, rather than being one of the greatest documents of freedom in human history, is in fact a document that leads inexorably to, to totalitarianism that must be resisted, that it's all about repression. So he says we have to go back to first principles. We have to go back to principles that precede the repressive society. Uh, precede, I should say, the repressive society if we want to be able to get rid of the repression and oppression. By whom, he says, and according to what standards can the political distinction between true and false, progressive and regressive, for in this, for in this sphere these pairs are equivalent, be made and its validity be justified? So he, this is the big question. Who gets to decide what constitutes progress and regress, true and false? Who gets to decide that? Because, again, his argument is that within the existing system, everybody's corrupted by the existing system. So those people can't be the ones. So guess who it's going to be? Any, any guesses? If you guessed him and his acolytes, you're pretty close to the right answer. If you guess the commies, you are also pretty good at guessing the right answer. Okie dokie. So he says, at the outset, I propose that the question cannot be answered in terms of the alternative between democracy and dictatorship, according to which in the latter, one individual or group, without any effective control from below, arrogate to themselves the decision. So dictatorship and democracy, that's not really what we need to worry about. Dictatorship, it's obvious you have a certain small group who give themselves permission to make that decision. Psst, that's what he wants to be. That's what the critical race theorists are. They're the party who are going to make the decision for you. They're the ones who are deciding. That's our oligarchs. That's the Democratic Party. They're going to decide what is and isn't acceptable. That's the world he's actually creating. Shh. Okay, anyway, he says, we can't talk about dictatorship and democracy. That's not the point. Historically, he says, even in the most democratic democracies, the vital and final decisions affecting the society as a whole have been made constitutionally or in fact by one or several groups without effective control by the people themselves. So representative democracy is itself a problem. This is where I told you before, these neo-Marxists believe that ideal democracy, which is what they call it, only exists at the other side of the communist rainbow, at the end of the communist rainbow, right? Where there's no oppression, there's no power, there's no groups, everybody's equal, everything's equal. There's absolutely, he says it at the beginning, that the, there's absolute tolerance that's totally on, on, has total parity between the rulers and the ruled. Total communist utopia is the only place where you have ideal democracy. So historically, even in the most democratic democracies, which he's going to, which he insists, in fact, are not genuinely all that democratic, the vital and final decisions affecting the society as a whole have been made constitutionally or in fact by one or several groups. So it's the same as a dictatorship is what he's saying without effective control by the people themselves. The ironical question, who educates the educators, that is the political leaders, also applies to democracy.
So the system, he says, is corrupt and builds itself up. And there's the elites and there's small groups of power. And they dictate who's going to get to educate. And those people are going to become the next crop of political leaders. And so you actually have a de facto party like in a dictatorship within a democracy. The only authentic alternative, he offers, and negation of dictatorship with respect to this question would be a society in which the people have become autonomous individuals freed from the repressive requirements of a struggle for existence and the interest of domination, and as such human beings choosing their government and determining their life. That's the thing at the end of the communist rainbow. Okay? If you don't understand that, it's hard to understand what he's talking about. But again, he's already argued that in a system like we have, people do not, they're not autonomous individuals who can think for themselves or feel for themselves or decide for themselves. They are in fact conditioned by their society and its ideologies and its consumerism and the capitalist uh, workaday life where they have to show up, go to work, come home, buy products, be happy on terms set by others, watch their stupid sports ball and uh, which just conditions them into more of the same kind of patterns and the same consumerism and sells them products on those stupid commercials. He's already made out that people in our society, Western societies in 1965 at least, and going forward he would say it's probably worse, are very conditioned individuals who are not autonomous. He says that, they're, that their inputs are actually heteronomous instead of autonomous. And they have not been freed from repressive requirements of a struggle for existence, like going to work, in the interest of domination, like your boss, and as such, human beings choosing their government and determining their own life. We don't have ideal democracy because we aren't at the end of the communist rainbow. Such a society, he says, a truly ideal democracy, such a society does not yet exist anywhere. <laughs> no shit. In the meantime, the question must be treated in abstracto, abstraction, not from the historical possibilities, again, historical, Marx, Hegel, eschaton, other side of the communist, <laughs> the end of the communist rainbow, but from the realities of the prevailing society. So we're going to abstract from everything that's going wrong. In other words, we're going to do critical theory. Remember what I said in part one, critical theory is a theory that presupposes a normative vision of society. I'm saying that for these neo-Marxists, they meant liberation, which exists at the end of the communist rainbow. That's your historical possibilities that have been rendered utopian possibilities at the beginning of the essay. Okay? And what, what a critical theory has to do is it has to have that normative vision, and it has to be able to explain how that normative vision is failed by the present society. Abstraction not from the historical possibilities, but from the realities of the prevailing societies. We're going to do critical theory on the prevailing society in order to answer the question. So what he's saying here, he's setting it up. He's saying that the critical theorists are the only ones who have the necessary understanding to determine, if I recall, the very notion at the beginning of this paragraph of false tolerance, the distinction between right and wrong, limitations on tolerance between so he could the critical theorists get to decide what is the correct kind of tolerance and what is the wrong kind of tolerance they get to decide what counts as progressive and what counts as regressive indoctrination they get to choose which violence is revolutionary which is justified always justified and which is reactionary never justified they get to choose who the critical theorists 
How do I know that? Such a society does not yet exist anywhere. In the meantime, the question, because there's no, there's no example we can look to that's on the other side of the communist rainbow. Stalin screwed it up. Russia sucks, or USSR at this time sucks. Maoist China, not doing great in the 60s. Such a society does not yet exist anywhere. In the meantime, the question must be treated in abstracto. Abstraction not from the historical possibilities, but from the realities of the prevailing societies. In other words, how they deviate from that normative vision for society that exists at the end of the communist rainbow that the neo-Marxists were focused on. And that's where ideal democracy lives. Ideal democracy in which, uh, where is it? Um, Ideal democracy in which society, the people have become autonomous individuals freed from the repressive requirements of a struggle for existence in the interest of domination and as such human beings choosing their government and determining their life. So you're talking about a democratic socialism that will eventually become a communist utopia. That's where, and not having that becomes the standard not having that, how our society deviates from that becomes a standard that allows them to determine what type of tolerance is okay and is not, what type of indoctrination is okay and is not, what type of violence is okay and is not. And so I'm dead serious when I say that that paragraph is a justification that critical theorists like Herbert Marcuse are setting themselves up as the people who get to decide when violence is okay, when tolerance is necessary and not allowed and when indoctrination is of value. If we remember from part two, he actually says that uh, we have to, we, 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 in order to break the bubble of indoctrination that society is already doing, that's his argument about the media and probably education, we have to intentionally slant it the other way. And I made the argument that that's false. I made the argument that all you have to do is show the truth and juxtapose the lie against the truth or just juxtapose the lie against it, another lie so that you can see the hypocrisy in it. A good example, is um, we're seeing lots of good examples around COVID policy, for example, immediately after the inauguration. We're seeing good examples, all kinds of things. I think NPR had had two, I, I put it on Twitter, or NPR had two articles that came out back to back the day before Biden's inauguration on January 20th and the day after Biden's inauguration. And so the 19th and the 21st, and one of them was like, COVID's getting so much worse. Oh my God, 400,000 dead, alarm, alarm, alarm. And then the one after the inauguration was, hey, look, scientists say that COVID's plateauing now. It might be over by spring or by summer. Completely different tone. That juxtaposition actually reveals the truth, right? You don't have to slant anything, but Marcuse said you do have to slant. And here he argues in this paragraph for progressive indoctrination. And he and his kind, the critical theorists, get to decide what that is. That's what this essay is about. He gets to choose his stuff. His indoctrination is good. Everybody else's is bad. Okay? So we carry on. I suggested that the distinction between true and false tolerance, between progress and regression, can be made rationally on empirical grounds. Sidebar, the Marxists believed that the only true science was Marxist. The neo-Marxists would have bought into this. They called all other science positivist, and they said that it just upheld the status quo. So when we say rationally on empirical grounds, what we actually mean is using critical theory and selective evidence that supports their claims. I know you can say, that's not what it says. That's not what the words are. If you come at it from the neo-Marxist mindset, that's exactly what it means. 
He's already set it up that the critical theorists are going to be the ones, the neo-Marxists are going to be the ones who get to decide what is right and what is wrong, on rationally on, and on empirical grounds, which they're going to define what rational and empirical mean. That, of course, got, this was in 65, that, that part got a bit shifted with the inclusion of, that didn't really work out, and then the inclusion of postmodernism uh, freed them from that, and the woke are, are basically having been freed from that by partially good and partially bad readings, of, largely of Michel Foucault's philosophy about truth and knowledge and power. Okay, so he goes on, the real possibilities of human freedom are relative to the attained stage of civilization. Hmm. Hmm, stages of civilization. Who talked about those? Marx? Yes, of course. These people are Marxists, okay? And so science, empirical, rational, is all meaning in alignment with Marxist thought. The stages of civilization, the fourth, fifth, and sixth, are capitalism, going into late capitalism, that's four, giving way to socialism. I just said that the goal is you're going to stay, compare against a democratic socialism that will turn into a benevolent capital, or communism at the end of the communist rainbow. The real possibilities of human freedom are relative to the attained stage of civilization. They depend on the material and intellectual resources available at the respective stage, and they are quantifiable and calculable to a high degree by Marxists, or neo-Marxists, I suppose. So are, at the stage of advanced industrial society, late capitalism, the most rational ways of using these resources and distributing the social product with priority on the satisfaction of vital needs and with a minimum of toil and injustice. In other words, it is possible to define the direction in which prevailing institutions, policies, opinions would have to be changed in order to improve the chance of a peace which is not identical with Cold War and a little hot war and a satisfaction of needs which does not feed on poverty, oppression, and exploitation. In other words, go toward the communist, the end of the communist rainbow. Consequently, it is also possible to identify policies, opinions, movements which would promote this chance, uh, his, and those which would do the opposite, those against his. Suppression of the regressive ones is suppression of the regressive ones, in his estimation, suppression of the regressive ones is a prerequisite for the strengthening of the progressive ones. So he set himself up, he and his people get to define the difference between progressive and regressive, and here he says suppressive of the ones that we don't like is a prerequisite for the strengthening of the ones we are doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I keep telling you, this is the logic that we live in today. The left has adopted this logic completely. That which serves their progress, their definition of progress, their idea, the right side of history for them, good. Everything else has to be suppressed so it can strengthen their own movement. Sound familiar? Okay. So he comes back to the question. The question, who is qualified to make all of these distinctions, definitions, identifications for the society as a whole, has now one logical answer. Spoiler alert, it's him. Namely, everyone, and this is in, uh, maybe it's not, it's fake quotes. Okay, sorry. Namely, everyone in the maturity of his faculties as a human being. Everyone who has learned to think rationally, and here's a key word, autonomously. Remember, 
everybody in society that's brainwashed by society, in other words, everyone who's not a critical theorist, doesn't think autonomously, they think heteronomously. They think in terms of all of the competing messages that they're constantly given. They aren't thinking for themselves. The corporations, the government, the powers, the police, everybody's conditioning them to think this is the way things are supposed to be. This is how you should think. This is what you should buy. This is why you should go to work. This is why you should, if you read Eros and Civilization, his book from 1955, why you should suppress your libidinal urges for sex and fighting and sublimate them into work through the Protestant work ethic, which John Locke was a huge fan of if you read um, you know, the original classical liberals. So that's what I said him. He's the one. The question, who is qualified to make all these distinctions, definitions, identifications for the society as a whole, has now one logical answer, namely me. I mean, everyone in the, quote, maturity of his faculties as a human being, everyone who has learned to think rationally in Marxism, neo-Marxism, and autonomously. In other words, they've achieved the psychological aspect of liberation that he thinks is the right thing to do. He sets himself up as the right answer here. The answer to Plato's educational dictatorship is the democratic educational dictatorship of free men. John Stuart Mill's conception of the res republica is not the opposite of Plato's. The liberal, too, demands the authority of reason, not only as an intellectual, but also as a political power. In Plato, rationality is confined to this small number of philosopher kings, like himself. In Mill, every rational human being participates in the discussion and decision, but only as a rational being. In other words, doesn't have false consciousness. In other words, only critical theorists count. But those are your philosopher kings, right? Almost, not really. The big point, back to Eros and civilization, those libidinal urges that he was all into, Eros, like Marcusa just wanted to have like orgies or something, like seriously. In Plato, Marcusa kind of glides over this. In Plato, and in, in the Republic, Plato describes the philosopher kings as having the right to rule because they're all above people, blah, blah, blah. But he also describes them as hardcore ascetics. They have to be removed from the circles and the temptations of the world so that they will make wise decisions. They have to live very austere, like Augustine after he has his, con- his change, um, his conversion. Very austere lives. They can't be indulging in the libidinal excesses of liberation that Marcuse wants. Marcuse wants his cake and to eat it too, right? Because here he says in Mill, it's every rational human being participates in a discuss- discussion and decision, but only as a rational being, which he's already defined as people who have escaped false consciousness, which means critical theorists, which means people like him who want to have, who want to be philosopher kings because they get to make all those decisions for people and they're philosophers and they're smarter than everybody, obviously, because they're the only ones with true rationality. Everyone, no one else thinks autonomously except them. Everyone else thinks heteronomously, conditioned, false consciousness by by the ideology of society and marketing and everything else. But he also wants a non-ascetic life. He wants actually a libidinous, orgiastic life. He wants his cake and eat it too. These people are cracked. They want the utopia. They think that this is possible. Where he says that this society does not yet exist anywhere in the world is because it can't. But I digress. Where society has entered the phase of total administration and indoctrination, he says, this would be a small number indeed. Yeah, he and his little cronies are a small number indeed. 
and not necessarily that of the elected representatives of the people. Of course, Congress isn't, no. I mean, everybody agrees with that anyway, but it's he really means him. The problem is not that of an educational dictatorship, but that of breaking the tyranny of public opinion and its makers in the closed society. However, granted the empirical rationality of the distinction between progress and regression, to catch that? Remember what I said that how neo-Marxists thought about empirical rationality? It's what favors their stuff. Granted, now, now it's who gets to make these decisions between progress and regression, right? That's where we started here. And now it's granted the empirical rationality, my views, Marcuse's, of the distinction between progress and regression, and granted that it may be applicable to tolerance and may justify strongly discriminatory tolerance on political grounds, cancellation of the liberal creed of free and equal discussion. Cancellation of the liberal creed of free and equal discussion may justify, let me, let, me, let me hit that again, granted the empirical rationality of the distinction between progress and regression, he gets to decide the difference between progress and regression, and granted that it may be applicable to tolerance, and may justify strongly discriminatory tolerance on political grounds, and in parentheses he includes cancellation of the liberal creed of free and equal discussion. Free speech, out. Why? The empirical rationality of getting across the communist rainbow. Another impossible consequence would follow. I said that by virtue of its inner logic, withdrawal of toler tolerance from regressive movements and discriminating toler discriminatory tolerance in favor of progressive tendencies would be tantamount to the official promotion of subversion. The historical calculus of progress, which is actually the calculus of the prospective reduction of cruelty, misery, and suppression, seems to involve the calculated choice between two forms of political violence. That on the part of the legally constituted powers, by their legitimate action or by their tacit content or by their inability to prevent violence, and that on the part of the potentially subversive movements. That's him. Moreover, with respect to the latter, a policy of unequal treatment would protect radicalism on the left against that on the right. We're getting real explicit now. Can the historical calculus be reasonably extended to the justification of one form of violence as against the another? Or better, since justification carries a moral connotation, remember he's got to be perfectly rational in his critical theory here, and empirical, is there historical evidence to the effect that the social origin and impetus of violence from among the ruled or ruling classes, the have or the have-nots, the left or the right, is in a demonstrable relation to progress as defined above? With all the qualifications of a hypothesis based on an open historical record, it seems that the violence emanating from the rebellion of the oppressed classes broke the historical continuum of injustice, cruelty, and silence for a brief moment, brief but explosive enough to achieve an increase in the scope of freedom and justice, and a better and more equitable distribution of misery and oppression in a new social system. In one word, progress and civilization. This is an interesting and complicated point that he's making here. So he's saying that revolutionary violence was able to break things open for a moment, therefore good, and to achieve an increase in the scope of freedom and justice. We could think of the violences of the labor movement, for example, fighting back. You could think of the colonial, the colonized people fighting back against their colonizers and driving colonialism out. 
but he doesn't say that this makes the world better. He says that it gives a better and more equitable distribution of misery and oppression in a new social system, and one word, progress and civilization. So in some sense, civilization becomes kind of the problem. The English Civil Wars, he names, the French Revolution, the Chinese and the Cuban Revolutions, the Chinese one and Cuban, yeah, those are good ones, Woo. may illustrate the hypothesis. In contrast, the one historical change from one social system to another, marking the beginning of a new period in civilization, which was not sparked and driven by an effective movement from below, namely the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West, brought about a long period of regression for long centuries until a new, higher period of civilization was painfully born in the violence of the heretic revolts of the 13th century and in the peasant and laborer revolts of the 14th century. That's a very interesting read on the long, like, big-picture history of Europe from the collapse of the Roman Empire to uh, the beginning of, I guess, the Renaissance. It was a very interesting read on it that the collapse of the Roman Empire brought a long period of regression for long centuries, where, I mean, most people attribute this to the absolute hegemony of the Catholic Church and its closure, not quite the same thing. The Catholic Church didn't destroy the Roman Empire intentionally. It collapsed, and it was their, their bureaucratic state by that point. It's a little bit more complicated point than he's making. But that wouldn't work for him, so he's got to put it that way. Um, because he wants to make this point. With respect to historical violence emanating from among ruling classes, no such, to, no such relation to progress seems to obtain. The long series of dynastic and imperialist wars, the liquidation of Spartacus in Germany in 1919, fascism and Nazism did not break but rather tightened and streamli streamlined the continuum of suppression. I said emanating from among the ruling classes, to be sure, there is hardly any organized violence from above that does not mobilize and activate mass support from below. The decisive question is on behalf of and in the interest of which groups and institutions is such violence released? And the answer is not necessarily ex post. In the historical examples just mentioned, it could be and was anticipated whether the movement would serve the revamping of the old order or the emergence of a new. Liberating tolerance. So now, finally, after using these historical examples, he's ready to tell us what liberating tolerance that his movement would, would, would prescribe. Liberating tolerance then would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. I told you that was the thesis. Let me just say it again. This is the actual sentence that Marcuse wrote with a dead straight face, I'm sure, probably with a grumpy face. He often looked pretty grumpy. Liberating tolerance then would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. That's it. Couldn't possibly, what could possibly go wrong? He even mentioned China and Cuba in the like two paragraphs before. What could possibly go wrong? One more time in case you didn't catch it. This is the thesis statement of Herbert Marcuse's famous important essay from 1965, Repressive Tolerance. Liberating tolerance, then, would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left. That simple. Right, bad, left, good. All this long-winded garbage to justify that sentence. Now it gets worse. As to the scope of this tolerance and intolerance, 
It would extend to the stage of action as well as of discussion and propaganda, of deed as well of, as, of, of word, as well as of word. So hold up. Remember I said that due to Marx, critical theory had a third component. It had to have a normative vision for society. That's the communist utopia. That's one. Had to be able to analyze society in terms of how it fails that vision. That's two. And to make it a critical theory, it has to, as Marx indicated, wed theory and praxis. In other words, it has to be able to be put into practice by social activists. So here, it would extend to the stage of action as well as of discussion and propaganda, of deed as well as of word. The tradition the traditional criterion of clear and present danger seems no longer adequate to a stage this is this is where he justifies why it's left this is this is mental okay i know i shouldn't editorialize ahead of time but marcusa in part two you can hear he said we should editorialize things so i'm just following his rules so he's saying we have to have active activism here we have to have this Liberating tolerance then would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration movements from the left. This has to include action, not just discussion and propaganda, deed, not just word. And then he says, you know, we had mentioned earlier in the essay, if you've forgotten, it was in, I think, part one, that he said that clear and present danger is a traditional marker where you have to start taking action, that, that most liberal societies recognize that you can act maybe with violence, when there is clear and present danger, that's a standard. Okay, so here we hearken back to that to justify this garbage sentence. The traditional criterion of clear and present danger seems no longer adequate to a stage where the whole society is in the situation of the theater audience when somebody cries fire. It is a situation in which the total catastrophe could be triggered off any moment, not only by a technical error, but also by a rational miscalculation of risks or by a rash speech of one of the leaders. Okay, hold up. Let's give him some credit. This is 1965. We're at the height of the Cold War. We got nuclear weapons out the wazoo. We already had some near-miss nuclear accidents going on. I don't know by 1965 which ones if it had occurred, but there were cases where like planes carrying nuclear bombs like crashed. That's scary. There was a case where uh, NORAD or something like that detected a, apparently a massive incoming military uh, nuclear strike from Russia, and the, they had to make a instantaneous decision as to whether or not to retaliate in mutually assured destruction and end the world. And it turned out that the that the that they actually detected the rising of the moon, and so we almost like within minutes at the most tense moment. We've also had. I, I don't remember what year. I don't think the Cuban Missile Crisis had occurred yet. But we are talking about a situation in which technical error, rational miscalculation of the risks of, say, nuclear war, or a rash speech of one of the leaders. We just went through people freaking out about that with Trump, thinking he was going to spark a nuclear war with any number of people, in particular North Korea, could end could lead to total catastrophe. So Marcuse is saying that because we live in a world like that, we... We always live in a completely clear and present danger situation. So this is supposed to justify his absolute intolerance of anything that disagrees with him. In the past, in different circumstances, the speeches of fascists and Nazi leaders were the immediate prologue to the massacre. Kinda. Kinda. They weren't that, I mean, eventually they were immediate. Hitler's first speech wasn't followed by gas chambers. There were a number of years before that happened. Um, but you can take his point. The distance between the propaganda and action, 
and the action between the organization and its release on the people had become too short. So here we are talking about a number of years. That is worrying. It's not long. But given the, the scale of destruction that these people could, could bring, bring into the world. And so he says, but the spreading of the word could have been stopped before it was too late. Maybe. If democratic tolerance had been withdrawn when the future leaders started their campaign, mankind would have had a chance of avoiding Auschwitz and a world war. So basically saying if somebody would have revoked Hitler's ability to speak, revoked Mussolini's ability to speak, I don't see Stalin on the list, I don't see Mao on the list, but nevertheless, if somebody would have revoked their, their right to speak, then we would have avoided Auschwitz and World War II. And so this is supposed to justify why his right, bad, left, good, repressive tolerance is the way to go. And this is a, this next part is a, I know I'm getting long and we'll wrap up part three here, but this is, this next paragraph is a stunning, stunning paragraph. I think it's one of the most important paragraphs um, to understand just how Marcuse's mind was working on this problem, besides obviously all the self-serving justifications that he's made so far. He writes, the whole post-fascist period is one of clear and present danger. Take that sentence in a second. The whole post-fascist period is one of clear and present danger, because fascism is coming to the world, doesn't go back to nuclear weapons here, because fascism is coming to the world, the whole post-fascist period is one of clear and present danger, that's the justification he's going to give for right, bad, left, good, under his definitions of left and right. Consequently, he writes, true pacification requires a withdrawal of tolerance before the deed. So you have to stop Hitler before he can speak at the stage of communication in word, print, and picture. Such extreme suspension of the right of free speech and free assembly is indeed justified only if the whole of society is in extreme danger. So he's not totally unreasonable, right? But then he says, I maintain that our society is in such an emergency situation and that it has become the normal state of affairs. I mean, this is like TDS times a million. I maintain, let me just read that whole little part again. The whole post-fascist period is one of clear and present danger. Consequently, true pacification requires a withdrawal of tolerance before the deed at the stage of communication in word, print, and picture. Such extreme suspension of the right of free speech and free assembly is indeed justified only if the whole of society is in extreme danger. I maintain that our society is in such an emergency situation and that it has become the normal state of affairs. Different opinions and philosophies, that's in scare quotes, can no longer compete peacefully for adherence and persuasion on rational grounds. The so-called marketplace of ideas is organized and delimited by those who determine the national and individual interest. In this society for which the ideologists have proclaimed the end of ideology, the false consciousness, he's finally explicitly named it, the false consciousness has become the general consciousness from the government down to its last objects. The small and powerless minorities would struggle against the false consciousness and its beneficiaries must be helped. There's your, your race angle, for example. Their continued existence, as though that's what's at stake, their continued, it sounds like what we hear today, right? You're erasing my existence, you're <laughs> intense. Their continued existence is more important than the preservation of abused rights and liberties which grant constitutional powers to those who oppress these minorities. 
Remember we started with everything's immediately going to be fascist and now he's like something about these minorities. It should be evident by now that the exercise of civil rights by those who don't have them presupposes the withdrawal of civil rights from those who prevent their exercise. Let me say that again. Let's get that right. It should be evident by now that the exercise of civil rights by those who don't have them presupposes the withdrawal of civil rights from those who prevent their exercise. So what he's saying is if you want to give minorities, if you want to, in the civil rights movement, if you want to give black people rights, you have to withdraw the rights of white people because those are the people that would prevent them to have, from having them. So you have to silence white people to liberate black people. Sound familiar? That's what he's saying. That's the exact opposite of what Martin Luther King was talking about. It's the exact opposite of what worked. It was the exact opposite of what Frederick Douglass called for when he was praising the Constitution in the 1850s. That's what Marcusa argues here. It should be evident by now, <laughs> it's false, so it's not, that the exercise of civil rights by those who don't have them presupposes the withdrawal of civil rights from those who prevent their exercise. And that liberation of the damned of the earth presupposes suppression not only of their old, but also of their new masters. It's a hell of a paragraph right there. That is a hell of a paragraph. And so the damned of the earth is probably, but I'm not positive because it could refer to a lot of things. It's possibly, I should say then, a reference obliquely to the wretched of the earth, which is a book by Franz Fanon that would have come out a few years before this and really set the world on fire. He was a post-colonialist. He was talking about, I think he was a French psychoanalyst, so he's probably talking about Algeria, if I had to guess. I'm not totally positive anymore. I haven't reviewed my Fanon in a couple of years. Um, Fanon openly said that, that the colonized have the right and, in fact, need to use violence to restore their dignity and their sense against their uh, oppressors, their colonizers. And so... Here, Marcusa says, we'll read that last sentence again. It's just so ridiculous. It should be evident by now that the exercise of civil rights by those who don't have them presupposes the withdrawal of civil rights from those who prevent their exercise and that the liberation of the damned of the earth presupposes suppression, not only of their old, but also of their new masters. So here we have Marcusa very explicitly very, very explicitly calling for the uh, a, a very repressive tolerance. Where th th that's the logic of now. We have him very explicitly calling for you know right, bad, left, good, and what we need to do is withdraw the civil rights of people who disagree with his liberation movements and extend the civil rights outside of the normal range, including to violence of people who do agree with his movements. And again, I make the case that this is the logic of the world we live in now. Marcusa in this essay laid out the logic that the liberationist movements took up and that they have now mainstreamed and left politics since the 1960s has been largely and increasingly and lately com almost completely dominated by this logic. And it's what you see causing tax censorship in a very biased fashion is what you see with the responses to, say, the incident at the Capitol versus the incidents of BLM over the summer. It's what you see um, rather nakedly from from the, the ways that, that Democratic and Republican politicians are commenting on things. And uh, we're seeing total condemnation of the right and 
absolute permissiveness or very weak opposition of terrible things that are happening also on the left. And so I think it's very important to understand this. We will pick back up in part four. This was part three. I hope part four will be the last one. We might run long on part four to finish it. I might break it into two. We'll see. Um, but I will start by rereading this paragraph in part four, actually. So I apologize that it'll be redundant, but it's so important to read these two paragraphs again, where we have defined liberating tolerance as that which means intolerance against movements from the right and toleration of movements from the left, because he maintains that our society is in an emergency situation in which the whole post-fascist period is one of clear, of present, clear and present danger that has become the normal state of affairs. So different opinions, he writes, and philosophies can no longer compete peaceably for adherence and persuasion on rational grounds. Everything has been bent to the power of the ideologists who they believe have said the ideology is over. So we pick up from there with part four. Thanks for listening. We are going to continue to break down repressive tolerance so that everybody can understand this nightmare of an essay and its its uh, relevance and importance to the world in 2021. <laughs>